Okay, wait, wait, just a second. I got to plug this. Okay, I hear you thinking. What's going on? It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. It's TechBiter Worldwide for the first week in 2009, January 4th. And you're wondering, what was all that? I've been saying for several years that we're able to provide an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes because we leave out the sports, the jingles, the weather, the news, and the commercials. So you may be wondering, what's with the jingles? Well, first, they're really not jingles. The music is limited to the open and close, so they're themes. And the other music you'll hear later are bridges or bumpers. But the open and close music adds about 20 seconds to the length of the program. The bridges are there to indicate when one item is ending and another is about to begin. Together they probably add 30, 40 seconds, maybe a minute to the entire show. But they clearly designate the point at which one segment is ended and another is about to begin. So, I hope you'll agree with me that the slight addition to the length of the program is worth the extra clarity. But I'm still going to leave out the sports, particularly the sports, the weather, the news, and the commercials. And I'll have more details about all the changes in the program on February 1st. And there's one of those bridges leading up to Don't Lose That Sinking Feeling. And no, that is not a blues song from the 60s. This is about an application that can help you keep a safe copy of your most important files in a different directory or on another hard drive or perhaps completely elsewhere. Now, it doesn't take the place of a backup program, but it's helpful when something unfortunate happens to an important file. Instead of having to restore everything from a backup drive that might be stored somewhere else, you can be able to retrieve the last known good version of the file from your sync directory or the directory on another drive that's sitting beside your machine. That's what I have here. program is called Always Sync, or maybe Alway Sync. It's hard to tell from the spelling. It is free for personal use, but if you use it as much as I do, it will soon begin bugging you to license the Pro version. The Pro version has no additional features, but it does stop nagging you. Given the application's low cost, 20 bucks, uh, it was easy enough to fork over the money for it. Always Sync has an easy interface that allows you to define what it refers to as left and right folders. The folder on the left is your source folder. folder on the right is the destination folder. Now, in setting up that relationship, you tell Always Sync what to do when files on either side are changed or deleted. Because I set up the application to be a safety net, I want all of my changed files and all of my new files to be copied from the left to the right. If I delete a file on the left, I do not want that deletion to be mirrored on the right. That means I can delete a file on the left, but it'll still be available on my safety net drive. Each job becomes a tab on the interface, and in manual mode, right-clicking the tab offers you the opportunity to analyze or synchronize the folders. As the synchronization process runs, Always Sync logs every action it takes, creating new directories on the right, copying files, and everything else that it does. Now, I don't consider Always Sync to be a backup program, 
but you're not limited to just the drives that are attached to your computer. Always Sync can back up files to a network folder, to an FTP site, to Amazon's simple storage service, to offsitebox.com, or to a WebDAV folder. So even though I don't recommend using Always Sync instead of a full backup application, if you don't have a true backup strategy in place right now, this is at least a very good start. And this application's real power comes from the ability to start Always Sync when the computer starts. That way it can watch directories you have defined, and for each defined job you set up specific rules for file synchronization. In nearly all cases I simply copy all of the new and changed files from left to right as I mentioned without mirroring any deletions. You can then set Always Sync to monitor specific directories and how long it will wait before starting to copy new and changed files once it notices them. To avoid constant disk activity, it's a good idea to set this to maybe 10 minutes or more. 10 minutes is the default. And if you have a directory where files change frequently, every few minutes, for example, maybe an email directory, you might want to leave that one on manual. You can also specify which files and folders to include or exclude when performing synchronization. And you can determine what Always Sync should do when a new file is copied to an existing file on your safety net drive. Currently I have Always Sync send the old versions to the recycle bin, but I might later choose one of the other options. And finally, you're allowed to specify what the program should do if it encounters an error. So the bottom line is that Always Sync doesn't exactly replace backup applications, but it can speed recovery from those occasional oops moments just tell the application which files and directories you want to synchronize, where you want to store the copies, and which files to include or exclude, and you're ready. That fits my definition of easy. For more information, check the Always Sync website. You can find a link to there on the TechBiter Worldwide website. And Always Sync receives four cats, as good as catnip. Network computers are chatty things. You might be surprised to find out just how much chattering your computer does, both internally and with Internet services. I have a utility called Kerports, and it tells me that AVG Antivirus typically maintains 14 connections on various ports. Firefox, at the time I checked, had 6. Pigeon, my instant messenger application, had 15. And once you've discovered all of those applications, you might wonder exactly what's happening on all of them. Well, if you download this little utility program, you can get a chart of what's going on. It shows you every process name, what its process ID is, the protocol it's using, what local port it has, what local address it's using, if it's using a remote port, what that is, what the remote address is, what the remote host name is, whether it's listening, talking, or has just established a connection, and what the name of the product that created it is. Current Ports gives you a lot of information about those connections. You'll see a complete list of all TCP, IP, and UDP ports on your computer, along with information about the process that opened the port, the process name, its full path, the version information about the process, the time that the process was created, and the username that was used when it was created. This can be useful information if you suspect an intrusion from a program that's trying to contact its creator without your knowledge. You can see on the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com, a full report provided by Current Ports. And even if you view that image full size, it's still going to look awfully small. 
the report is wide. It contains an enormous amount of information. Current Ports also allows you to close unwanted TCP connections, kill the process that opened the ports, and save the TCP or UDP port information to an HTML file, XML file, or to a tab-delimited text file. So if there are any suspicious activities on your computer, Current Ports will show them to you. It colors them pink. If Current Ports shows what turns out to be just entirely too much information for you, you don't want to see all those columns, or if you want to change the order of the columns on the screen and in the files that you save, it's very easy. Just select the Choose Column option from the View menu. Select the columns you want to see and what order you want them in. Bottom line, Current Ports, quick, easy, free, and it's a great way to find out what's chattering on your computer. Current Ports earns five TechBiter Worldwide Cats. Absolutely perfect. It's one of several useful utilities written by Nil Sofer. Easy to install, easy to use, and free. Besides that, it does what it's supposed to do. What more could you ask for? For more information, check the TechBiter Worldwide website, and you'll find a link to the Nearsoft website. <laughs> Every year, starting in about November, I put on my official designer's cap, and about that time, my graphic design professional daughter starts laughing. I'm sure that I will never design anything as creative or as compelling as she would, but so far, at least recently, I've managed to avoid creating too many designs that are unbearably ugly for the TechBiter Worldwide website. Well, now that it's January, it's time to tell you about the new features and the new look. If you are listening to the podcast, and if you're within the sound of my voice, that's apparently what you are doing, uh, you'll need to check out the website, www.techbiter.com, if you're really interested in seeing what I've done this year. I had three goals in mind this year. Soften the appearance a little bit, reduce the clutter, and make the site more accessible to those who might need larger type or smaller type on the screen. So, there are five primary changes. First of all, I used the fuzzy, kind of a grunge type for the banner. Uh, faces that I used are called malapropism, which visually seem to represent the kind of sound that comes out of a megaphone, which is the graphic I'm using, and Calamity Joe, which just seemed to fit the theme somehow. The megaphone is a stock image for my stock photo that I cropped and rotated. The second change is modification to the top-level menu. The menu had grown to two lines. That's too much as far as I'm concerned. It's now on a single line. The program date shares a line with information about the program's podcast, and that conserves a little bit of vertical spacing also. I changed the headlines for point number three. They are lighter in color and smaller this year, and the level one heads are on a light contrasting field. That makes the beginning of each article a little easier to find. The goal there, similar to the little musical bridges that are in the podcast making it easier to figure out where one item ends and another begins. The fourth improvement will work only if you have a modern browser, and most people do have a modern browser these days. Any current version of Microsoft's Internet Explorer, Mozilla Firefox, Google Chrome, Opera, and probably several others that I haven't yet tested can do this. You can enlarge or reduce the page, and it will scale both the text and the images. This is really pretty cool, the fact that the HTML and cascading style sheet specifications now allow us to do this kind of thing. And that is particularly helpful for someone who has 
a vision problem and is unable to read what is relatively small type on the website. Now you can change that. And the fifth change, last year I removed tables except when I needed them for tabular data, which is what you're supposed to use them for. I have continued with that this year and expanded it a bit. Current browsers all handle cascading style sheets well enough to make this possible. So now the site can completely separate design from structure and structure from content. So the biggest change, and the one that will probably help the most people, is the ability to scale the page. Previously, the site would not fit properly on any screen less than 1,024 pixels wide. Now, granted, most people do have screens at least that wide now, but not everyone runs the browser full screen. And visitors who arrived with extremely high-resolution screens would find a lot of white space around the page. Well, now you can scale the content larger or smaller to meet your needs. And I have tested this in Internet Explorer on Windows, in Mozilla Firefox on Windows, Mac, and Linux platforms, in Google Chrome, which is available only on Windows, so that's the only place I tested it, in Opera, again on Windows, Mac, and Linux machines, and Safari on the Mac. If you're interested in how the design has changed over the years, the TechBiter Worldwide website this week has the graphical history going all the way back as far as I can find it on the web. The program itself goes back to the early 1980s, but of course the web wasn't around in those days. The web didn't come along until about 1993 or 1994. The earliest website examples that I still have go back to 1998. So you can see the 1998-1999 versions. Uh, starting in 2000, I apparently got lazy because there weren't any changes between 2000 and 2004. And there were changes in 2006, 7, 8, and now in 2009. You may also notice that the screen width has changed over the years. In the early days, I stuck to designs that were 800 pixels wide or less. And now I'm up to 1,000. This simply keeps pace with larger, high-resolution screens that are available in the marketplace. In nerdly news, surprise, spam levels continue to be depressed, and I don't. In mid-November last year, the upstream providers of a hosting operation called Mikolo shut off service and immediately cut Internet spam about in half. I had expected levels to bounce back within a week or two. They didn't. They still haven't. Now, this is definitely not a complaint. Mikolo is thought to be run by a Russian gang of thieves. It had negotiated a backup connection with Swedish Internet service provider Telesonera. But the thieves were just a little lazy, maybe a little bit too much vodka for the weekend. After getting the service back online within a couple of days, they dawdled in re-establishing all of their botnets. The Telesonia connection was shut down before Mikolo could fully recover. As a result, nearly two months on, Spam levels are still far lower than they've been for years. Prior to mid-November, I could expect to receive 4,000 to 5,000 spams per month. That rate fell to below 1,000 briefly. It's now up to around 2,000. Because of the way I have organized anti-spam measures here, all but about 25 messages per month are discarded, with little or no intervention by me, and the only time I see them is when I go looking to see what's new in spam. 
Do you have 600 to to $1,000 trying to burn its way through your pocket that you want to drop on a new CPU? Just the CPU now. You'll still need a main board, memory, power supply, one or more hard drives, and some sort of box to put it in. Well, if that describes you, you've got that 600 to to $1,000 to spend, you could send it to me, or you could buy a new CPU. Here's what you'll want to know about Intel's new line of processors. It's called the i7. And this line of processors from Intel brings some new speed, even though most people really don't need additional speed these days. For most people, the computer they have is really fast enough. Those who do need more speed are, oh, say, for example, those people who consider themselves to be professional gamers, video editors, photographers, those kinds of folks. These are people who use powerful applications that need enormous amounts of processing power, memory, and disk speed. If you're just surfing the internet, writing books no larger than the average encyclopedia volume, and tinkering with the occasional photo, a fast new processor really won't do very much for you. And at first glance, it looks like these processors aren't a lot faster than some of the current processors. The speeds are just 2.93 and 2.66 gigahertz. But that's misleading. They handle 8 processing threads come with eight megabytes of cache and have three channels for DDR3 1066 megahertz memory. That is fast, or as Intel puts it, brilliantly fast. The integrated memory controller, for example, yields a maximum of 25.6 gigabytes per second of memory bandwidth. This is exactly where those memory-intensive applications such as photo manipulation applications need all the bandwidth that they can get. Faster usually means more power and hotter, but the i7 family is smart enough to use only what it needs. Instead of running everything full out all the time, it can turn on only what it needs at the moment. This kind of technology has been available on laptops for years. The result, particularly if you're running a room full of computers, could be lower energy consumption and lower cooling costs. So even the people who don't need all the speed might start paying attention to this new processor, at least once the price starts to come down. And that's it for January 4th. 2009. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.